not, then we'll just get into the Word of God. How many of you have been following along, uh, studying the Holy Spirit a little bit more? We're learning about the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is not a force or an it, but the Holy Spirit is a person who fellowships with us and who we fellowship with. Don't want to get weird with it, but I'm going to tell you, there's a verse where Paul said the communion, the fellowship, the communication of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And so we need to take the, the, the Scriptures very seriously. It's a great blessing. How many of you have been aware this week of fellowshipping with the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit speaking to you? You know, I think that the Holy Spirit likely ministers to you and me every day if we would pay attention. Every day. He opens up the Word of God to us. Uh, he's, a, he's a precious, precious presence in our lives. So tonight, we're going to look at something. How many of you have ever heard anything on the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament? Anybody? All right, good. Now let's look at it tonight. And I'm going to get you to stand with me to read one verse. We're going to look tonight at the Holy Spirit during the Old Testament ages. Were they born again in the Old Testament? How did the Holy Spirit deal with them? All right, let's read Job 33, verse 4 together, can we? The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty has given me life. What you may not know is Job is likely the oldest book in the Old Testament. So going all the way back to the oldest book, here is Job saying, Holy Spirit made me. That's powerful. And the Holy Spirit is what gave me life. And that's before there was a Moses, before there was a Pentateuch, before there was any Old Testament, nothing. He knew the Holy Spirit made him, and the Holy Spirit gave him life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you tonight for the Holy Spirit. We thank you, Lord, that he is here to minister to us. We thank you that he dwells with us and in us and ministers to us and communicates with us. Lord, we ask you through the Spirit to communicate to us tonight and open to us the Word of God. We ask you, Lord, to speak to us and renew our minds. Strengthen us in Jesus' name. Can you just pray tonight and say, Holy Spirit, breathe on me. Breathe on me. Amen. Amen. God bless you. You can be seated. Now, great deal of confusion prevails in our day concerning the Holy Spirit and the Old Testament saints. One of the verses that has led many to believe that their experience was very different from our, from our own, that is, those of the Old Testament did not have our experience, is this verse in John seven thirty nine, where it says, the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now, people read that and verses like it, and they say, okay, until Jesus was glorified, the Holy Spirit was not yet given. But that's not true. That is not true. Some have interpreted this to mean that the Old Testament saints had no access to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. But the phrase was not yet given, the phrase was not yet given, can no more be fully understood than Enoch was not. Do you ever uh, wonder what that meant when it says Enoch was not? He was and then he was not, for God took him. And that's a picture, of course, of the rapture of the church. But 
it's difficult. You can't take that phrase, quote, was not yet given, does not mean the Holy Spirit has not been active on the earth. It doesn't mean that at all. It simply means that the Holy Spirit had not yet been given in his full administrative authority. He had not yet been given in his full administrative authority. He had not yet been publicly manifested here on earth. But I'm going to tell you something, folks. The Holy Spirit was active in the beginning of the creation of the world forward. Let's look at that. All believers in every age had been sanctified and comforted by Him. But the ministration of the Spirit spoken of in 2 Corinthians 3.8 was not at that time fully introduced. That came with Pentecost. And you've heard me say often, the day of Pentecost was the birthday of the church. When the Holy Spirit fell, that was the birthday of the church. God launched His church. Remember Jesus said, don't even go out and preach. Don't minister. Don't teach. Don't try to reach anybody until the Spirit of God has fallen upon you. And when He fell upon them like cloven tongues of fire over their heads, and they spoke in tongues, and we talked about that one night, the ministry of tongues, and the church was born. But that was the official ministration of the Spirit. Now, look what it says, 2 Corinthians 3.8. This is the Message Bible, and I love the way it puts this. The government of death, its constitution chiseled on stone tablets, had a dazzling inaugural. Now, he's talking about when Moses received the Ten Commandments. That was the administration or the government of death. Well, how in the world was that the government of death? Because it showed us how exceedingly sinful we were. It put our sin under a microscope. Before the Ten Commandments, uh, we knew that something was wrong. We knew there was a right and wrong and so on and so forth, but it was not focused on like when the Ten Commandments were given. It's almost like God put our sins on a slide and slid them under a microscope and we saw them up close. Thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. And, I, and I've, I've told you before, and I'll reiterate tonight, the Ten Commandments were given not to save us, but to reveal our need, our, our need for a Savior. The Ten Commandments were like a school teacher that taught us there's no way we can live up to God's demands. There's no way. You keep one of them, you break another. You keep one thou shalt not, and you break another one. And James said, if you break one, you've broken them all. So the Ten Commandments were given to, in essence, chasten us into a Savior, chasten us into grace, reveal to us that we can't do it on our own. That's how important, that's how important the commandments were. That's what they did for us. So that's why it's called the government of death. And then it goes on, Moses' face, as he delivered the tablets, was so bright that day, even though it would soon fade, that the people of Israel could no more look right at him than stare into the sun. I mean, he glowed in the dark. When Moses received those commandments, it was with such Shekinah glory that when he came down off the mountain, they had to put a veil over his face. They said, we can't look at you. Can't look at you. You're glowing with the glory. But here's what Paul tells us in Corinthians. That's what it looked like when he first came down. But as the days 
progressed, it became lesser and lesser and lesser until finally that glow, that supernatural light was no longer on his face. And Paul said, there's a reason for that. God wanted us to know that this old covenant would over time pass away, just like the glow on his face. So the old covenant, here's what he's saying here. The old covenant came with glory. It came, it was inaugurated with an incredible anointing on Moses, but it faded. It faded and it was meant to. So as time went on, the people of Israel realized, hey, we can't live up to these things. We can't live up to these things. God said, that's exactly what I want you to realize because I'm going to send my son and he's going to live those commandments out perfectly and then he's going to die for you. And when you turn to him in faith, I'm going to impute to you his perfect life. I like to think of it as as, um, lifting a barbell, five weights on each side, 10 in all. And God handed it to the human race and said, here you go, lift it. And we just caved under it. Jesus came along and said, excuse me. He picked it up. And his whole life long, he never, he never, it never tilted. He never dropped it. He lived a perfect life. And when he died on the cross, God took your sin, placed it on him. I don't know how that happened but he did it. Imputation. He imputed your sin to his son, and he took his son's righteousness and imputed it to you. It's in your bank account. Amen. That's what he did. And so, you know, I look at it as a debit and a credit. You know, we were in deep, deep, deep debt and could never have gotten out. But he took our debt and put it on Jesus, and he took his wealthy bank account and put it into our account. Amen. How would you like to wake up tomorrow and receive a message from your bank that some unknown wealthy giver had deposited $10 million into your account? Would you have a benefit? Would you have a benefit? Would you tithe? I'm just kidding. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Oh yeah, we tithe. But now watch this. That's what Jesus did. While we were yet in our sins, he died for us. And walking around in endless circles of darkness and despair and lostness, Paul said, while you were yet sinners, he died for you. And God took his wealth and placed it into the account of anyone who puts their faith in him. See, when you were lost, you were debited big time. When you died, if you had died in your sins, you would have answered to God for every single sin written in his books. But the minute you said, Jesus, forgive me, God took his wealth and he credited your account with perfect righteousness. And there's not anything you can do to make it better. And there's not anything you can do to make it worse. It's all by grace through faith. But see, these Ten Commandments are called the government of death. And as long as they lived under the Ten Commandments, they knew they were dead. They knew they could not live up to it. But here comes Moses. Now look what he says at the last part of this verse that I have underlined. How much 
more dazzling than the government of living spirit. He's saying contrast the two. If God gave the administration of death or the government of death by the glory being so bright on Moses, his face glowed in the dark. How much more is, and with much greater glory is God going to give the spirit of life and the new covenant? It came on Pentecost. He poured out his spirit on all flesh and they all were filled with his spirit. Now, powerful stuff. So say with me, if you want to take the book of Hebrews and, and boil it down to one word, it'd be better. We got a better covenant, better blood, a better savior, a better mediator, a better everything. And that's what he's telling us in 2 Corinthians 3.8. Now, let's reach back to the beginning of time for a quick scan of the work of the Spirit in creation. We're talking about the Holy Spirit, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit, the activity of the Holy Spirit in our world. Go all the way back to the beginning of time. And when did time begin? When the first material thing was created. That's when time began. Now, before the worlds were framed by the Word of God, Hebrews 11.3 tells us, when the whole mass of matter existed in chaos, without form and void, according to Genesis 1-2, we are told that the Spirit of God moved on the face of the waters. This is a mind blower to me. The same Spirit that was here tonight as we worship Him was there in the beginning of time when there were no birds, no fishes of the sea, no mammals, no human beings. He was brooding, moving, hovering over the face of the deep, the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God, we are told, was active with the Father and the Son, the creation of all things. Here comes Job again. He says, quote, by the Spirit, he has garnished the heavens. By the Spirit. The psalmist wrote, you send forth your Spirit and they are created. And you renew or renovate or renovate the face of the earth by the Spirit. Folks, the Spirit of God is so powerful. I mean, this thing about the Holy Spirit is so powerful. When the Spirit of God moves, things are created, things are healed, restored, quickened to life. When the Spirit of God moves, this is why we need the Spirit of God moving in church services. Because when He moves, there's no telling what's going to happen. You know, there you were one day lost, and the wind of the Spirit blew across your life. And look at you now. The Spirit of God is so powerful. So the Spirit of God who dwells in the heart of every believer is the same Spirit that brooded over the face of the deep. Same Spirit. Long before God commanded the light to shine, oh, this is out of my next book. This is a little quote out of my next book. Long before God commanded the light to shine or a countless cloud of birds graced the ancient blue sky, the first lion shattered the silence with his kingly roar or giant whales rolled and glided through a primeval sea when earth was a soup of nothingness, a bottomless emptiness, an inky blackness, the Spirit of God was there. And He's here right now. 
You know why? Because He always has been. And He always will be. Because He's God the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit. When Adam was created, how many of you are going to have a word or two with Adam when you get to heaven? Like, thanks a lot, bub. Thanks a whole lot. You should have told her no. (laughs) Ah, yeah, okay. When Adam was created, it says that God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. This can mean nothing less than that God imparted to the first man the Holy Spirit. God imparted into Adam the Holy Spirit of God. It says in Genesis 2, 7, Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath, or what? Say it with me. Spirit of life. Now, what did Jesus say about the Spirit? It is the Spirit that quickens, and that word quicken means gives life. And he said, The words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. So when you read the word quicken, it always means brought to life. And it says, God breathed into Adam the spirit of life. Now, you got to jump forward in the New Testament here because it says that we find that Jesus, after his resurrection, what did he do? He breathed on the apostles and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Praise God. Which is the parallel to Genesis 2-7. The first time was the original gift. The first time was the original gift to an unfallen man. But the second time was restoration of what was lost. See, folks, when we fell, when man fell, the Spirit of God was quenched out of our life. So what did Jesus come to do? He came to restore all things. You know what's amazing about the book of Revelation? You go to the book of Revelation, you see that so much of it has to do with restoring what you find back in Genesis 1 and 2. The river of life, the tree of life, uh, God, perfection, no sickness, no disease, no pain, no sorrow. That's in Revelations, and what that is is a restoration of what was lost. See, the Lord came to seek and to save what was lost. But we could add something to that. He came to restore what was lost. So the minute He comes into our hearts... Have you noticed? He begins to restore. He begins to restore what was ruined and destroyed by sin. Begins to renew your mind. He quickens your spirit. He he strengthens you. He gives you a vision and a dream, a, a, a purpose and a destiny. He restores what was lost. I don't think we realize how tragic the fall really was. The fall was like a nuclear blast in the spirit world. It forever wilted, withered, um, disfigured, defaced the human race. And Jesus came to restore what was lost. And it begins by the Spirit of God coming into you and me by the new covenant. And He begins to restore us. Thank God for that. Can we just take a minute and just thank the Lord for the restoration of the Holy Spirit? Lord, we just thank you. That you came to restore what was destroyed and lost. Thank you, Lord, for the Spirit of God renewing our minds, restoring our spirits. And that though the outer man is perishing, the inward man is being renewed day by day. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name.
Amen. Can you give him a hand of praise tonight? I just, I feel so thankful for it. You know, I find when I study the Word that the spirit of wisdom and revelation rested on Adam, and that's a, a, a um, signature mark of the presence of the Holy Spirit, a spirit of wisdom and revelation. Uh, after awakening from a deep sleep following the creation of Eve, he knew what had taken place, though he had been in a deep sleep. And he uttered these words, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. How did he know that? Did God wake him up, sit him up, say, now let me just tell you what I just did? Well, the Spirit of God told him. Because when God was doing this, he was in a deep sleep. So how did he wake up and know? Because he had a spirit of wisdom and revelation. Amen. The Spirit of God told him. In his unfallen state, Adam was possessed of the Holy Spirit. In his unfallen state. Here he is laying on the ground, freshly created, but he didn't sit up, stand up, look up, wake up until God breathed into him the Spirit of God. And that's when he sat up. He was quickened. Now, after the fall, the unbroken fellowship was shattered. One commentator writes, it is clear that unless the first man possessed the Spirit, the last man, the healer or restorer of the forfeited inheritance, would not have been the medium of giving the Spirit, who was withdrawn on account of sin, and who could be restored only on account of the everlasting righteousness which Christ brought in. So if nothing's been lost, then nothing needs to be restored. That's what he's saying. But since man lost the presence of the Holy Spirit inside of him, Jesus came to restore it. Man, I remember the first instant I was aware of the Holy Spirit in my life. I didn't even know what it was. I didn't know what He was. I didn't know there was a Holy Spirit. I was saved in a juvenile home. I mean, freaked out, wigged out, crazied out, in trouble, never heard the gospel. And when I got saved, I, it was in a dingy cell. 16 years old. And I didn't know how come when I opened my eyes, everything looked pretty and clean, even though the walls were green, lime green, and everything was so dismal and abysmal and oppressive and depressing. Uh -uh. When I came up, something was different to me. I felt lighter than a feather. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know there was a Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit was there. And so he began to restore. And he's restoring every one of you into the image of Jesus Christ. He came not just to save you, to rescue you, but to restore you. And we've got to get that in our minds. We don't just have fire insurance for the day we die. Praise God, I know when I die, I'm going to heaven. Well, you ought to know more than that. You ought to know that every single day, he's working in you to restore you every single day. I mean, that's powerful stuff. Thank God for that. I think we would be shocked if we had the eyes of God for one day at how many times God manipulates circumstances and moves things, moves things around and gives us divine encounters and speaks to us and protects us and overshadows us and orders our steps and speaks and ministers. How many times a day 
Because he's made up his mind. It was decreed before the earth was formed that you would be saved and restored into the image of his son. The second Adam. Praise God. So I got more than fire insurance. I'm daily a restoration project. Amen? Look at your neighbor and say, you're doing good under renovation. You know, we're talking about renovating a building we're going to get. And I say, if you see the building, just look at it the way God looked at you when you got saved. How many of you have ever thought, wondered if God went, oh, wow, and had to turn to Jesus and say, good luck? Hmm? But he's a restorer. And Romans 8.28 tells us he's decreed by divine decree to conform you into the image of his son, which is nothing short of total renovation of your life, restoration to the original condition. Praise God. Moving down through history, here's what you find. The nation of Israel experienced the Holy Spirit's teaching in the Old Testament. You, Nehemiah said, you gave also your good spirit to instruct them. So here's Israel back in Nehemiah's day saying, you know what? God gave his Holy Spirit to instruct, to teach his people. And what did Jesus say about the Holy Spirit in the new covenant? When he comes, he will teach you all things. What did John tell us? You have no need that any man teach you, but the same anointing that abides in you teaches you all things. Amen. Until he was quenched, he was upon the members of the Sanhedrin. And who's the Sanhedrin? The highest Jewish assembly for government in the time of Christ. Usually translated council. Until they quenched the Spirit of God away, the Bible testifies the Spirit of God was on them and ministering to them and teaching them. Verse 16 and 17, look what it says. And the Lord said to Moses, Gather for me 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them. And bring those 70 men to the tent of meeting and let them stand there with you. Now, this is in Moses' day. And look what happened. God said, I will come down and talk with you there, and I will take the Spirit which is upon you, and I will put it on them. This was the anointing of the Holy Ghost. What was on Moses? He glowed in the dark. He held out that rod and the sea parted. Moses had tremendous anointing on his life. And God said, I'm going to put it on the 70 elders of Israel. So you see the Spirit's activity back in Moses' day. He was moving. He was not inactive. And they shall bear the burden of the people with you so that you may not have to bear it yourself alone. Then you shoot down further in the Old Testament, and the Holy Spirit also fell upon the judges and the prophets like Gideon, Samuel, and the others. Judges 3, 9 and 10 says, But when the Israelites cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel to deliver them, Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord, read this with me, everybody. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel. So there's the Spirit of God coming upon these men way back in Old Testament times. Even when Israel was abysmally backsliding, and the book of Judges 
It's just one failure after another, after another, after another. It's not a lot of fun to read the book of Judges. But even then, the Spirit of God was moving among His people. This is Old Covenant. This is before a Messiah, before a perfect sacrifice. Old Covenant. Here's the Spirit of God moving. It is a mistake to say that the Holy Spirit was never in any believer before Pentecost. Look what David cried out in repentance. He said, cast me not away from your presence. And what did he say? Take not your Holy Spirit from me. I'll tell you, that's the sign of a man of God. His biggest fear was not, don't take my position from me. It was not, don't remove me as being king. That wasn't his biggest fear. His biggest fear was, God, don't take your spirit from me. Don't take your spirit from me. I have a deathly fear of the Spirit of God being taken from me. Please don't do that, Lord. David had, wow, murdered, done all kinds of things. And he said, don't let the Spirit of God be taken from me. That was his fear. Once you know the fellowship of the Spirit, you never want to lose it. It's too precious. It's too valuable. That was his fear. Numbers 27, 18 says, The Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, son of Nun, a man in whom, in whom, not on whom, but in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand upon him. So here was Joshua coming up under Moses. Moses is not going to cross over in the promised land with the people. And so what is what does it say? That Joshua already had the Spirit of God in him, and the Spirit of God had been preparing him for his incredible calling to lead a million people across the Jordan into the promised land. So it's not just the new covenant times when the Spirit of God was in people. The Spirit of God was in Joshua. Isn't that powerful? And they were warned by the Spirit in those days. The Spirit of God warned people in the Old Testament. Nehemiah 9, verse 30. Nehemiah says, Yet you bore with them many years more and reproved and warned them. By your Spirit, through your prophets, still they would not listen. Therefore you gave them into the power of the peoples of the lands. That's talking about the Babylonian captivity that Jeremiah prophesied to them about said if you don't turn God is going to judge you if you don't listen to the warnings of the spirit God's going to judge you and they did not listen and you read the book of Lamentations and Jeremiah describes these people in such heartbreaking uh, terminology and he watches them being carried down the street in chains and shackles uh, almost starved to death being carried off to Babylon for 70 years and why did that happen because though the spirit of God was warning them they did not listen let me just comment on that real quickly. You want to know when you're moving into a level of maturity? When God doesn't have to shout at you through a megaphone. When all he's got to do is give you a, a very slight prompting in your spirit. Like, don't. Don't. He's like, gotcha. Because here's what God does. God will first say, don't. You say, if you're wise, okay. 
If you don't listen to that, he'll say later, don't. If you don't listen to that, later, he'll shout through pain. He'll shout through pain. And if you think God can't whoop you, let me promise you he's got a woodshed that's very up to date. And he'll take you out there. And boy, next time he says, don't. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes. I think that was him. All I need to know is I think that was him. But see, they didn't listen. But I want you to notice that in the Holy Spirit or in the Old Testament, the Holy Ghost was very active among his people, warning them. Okay? They were taught by the Spirit that Christ would one day come to earth. This is amazing to me. In the Old Testament, look what Peter says in 1 Peter 1.11. They, talking about the Old Testament people, they sought to find out to whom or when this was to come, which the Spirit of Christ working where within them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that should follow. So within his people in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God was saying to them, I'm going to send, a Messiah is coming, a Savior is coming. He's going to come out of the Jewish people, out of the, the Semitic people. He's going to come out of the chosen people, God's people, the Jewish people. Jesus was a Jew. And they knew this in the Old Testament. And they inquired, they wanted to know uh, who, where, what, when, how. They were wondering. And so they were kind of walking, seeing through a glass darkly. And then finally, Jesus was sent to the earth. But they knew about it. They knew that it was coming. And it also says in the Old Testament, they rebelled against and vexed the Holy Spirit. Isaiah 63 verse 10 says, but they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned to become their enemy and himself fought against them. Wow. One thing you don't want is the Holy Spirit to be your enemy. Do I need to put that up there again? Look what happened. They rebelled and grieved his spirit. If you don't listen to him, he'll turn around and become your enemy. That is, he'll confront you instead of blessing you. The Holy Spirit only blesses with peace people who have repented and obey. Otherwise, the Holy Spirit can take away all your sleep. The Holy Spirit can make your life miserable if he's chastening you and trying to get you to come back to God. And look, he became their enemy and himself, capital H, fought against them. Wow. Stephen declared to the Pharisees and Sanhedrin in his final sermon before they stoned him to death, you do always resist the Holy Spirit as who did? Your fathers, the Old Testament people. They resisted the Holy Spirit. Following the giving of the law under Moses, also known as the legal economy or Mosaic covenant, they obviously had faith and performed works acceptable to God. And that can only be produced by the Holy Spirit. Look, the Spirit prompted true prayer. That's all through the Old Testament. Inspired spiritual worship. They had incredible worship times where they were all slain in the Spirit, in the temple, flattened. Produced his fruit in the lives of believers. They were taught to lean on the power of the Spirit just as we are. 
Zechariah 4 verse 6 says, so he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. That's a hard one. I heard one guy on the radio recently said, let's turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. And I said, oh my. And Zerubbabel is a twister. But anyway, not by might, this is what he said, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit. And he taught Old Testament people that, to lean on the power of the spirit. The spirit of God was given to the Old Testament saints prospectively. That is, in view of the future sacrifice of Christ to remove sin from the world. Now listen carefully to me. In the Old Testament, how were they saved? How were they saved? The Old Testament saints looked forward to the cross. While we in the New Testament look back on the cross. All the spiritual good which has ever been wrought in and through men must be attributed to the operation of the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, they knew that he was coming and they, they answered for the truth they knew. Now, I'm going to close with this. People have said to me, well, Pastor Jeff, you know, if they didn't have the blood, didn't have the Messiah, how were they saved? They were saved by putting faith in what they knew. People have said to me, how are people saved in lands where they've never heard the gospel? How can they possibly answer to God for what they've never heard? Romans 1 is very, very clear that God has created two things that are going to speak to people without ever hearing the gospel. Two things. Their conscience. He has written his law in your conscience. And if you never hear the gospel, you will answer for how you responded to your conscience. He judges based on the truth we knew. There is a tremendous responsibility in hearing the gospel. Do you know that? Because if you hear it and walk away, you got more light than a lot of people ever get. You answer by your conscience. Your conscience tells you something is right or wrong, good or bad, godly or ungodly. The second thing people will answer for is the testimony of nature. Romans 1 tells us that God created the world in such a way that his reality is seen in the things he has made, even his eternal power and Godhead. And here's what Paul says, so that they are without excuse. So some people are going to be called up before the resurrection throne of God and the judgment of God, and they're going to answer for those times they looked and they saw this incredible creation, and something said to them, God did that. God did that. My father, he's in heaven now, and before he came to Christ, I've been witnessing to him for years. He thought I lost my mind, but then he began to realize I had not, I'd actually found it. But he didn't listen. He didn't listen for the longest time. And one day I was at our uh, table in the kitchen. He walked in out of the backyard. And here's what he said, quote, he said, Jeff, you know what? There has to be a God. I said, what have I been telling you all this time? He had a problem with the atonement. He couldn't conceptualize it. He said, I said, why, Dad? He said, look at that out there. Look at those trees and the clouds and the sky and the birds. And he said, that did not just happen. 
Now, if he had dropped dead then, he would have answered for the truth he knew. David said, the heavens declare the glory of God, Psalms 19. And the firmament shows his handiwork. Now look at what it says about it. Day unto day they utter speech. Night unto night they show knowledge. There is nor, no voice nor language where their voice is not heard. So what does the creation do? Day unto day it speaks about God. Night unto night it shows knowledge. So you will answer for your conscience or you will answer for the testimony of nature. If you never hear the gospel, Paul said you're without excuse. You will go before your maker. And I believe without the gospel, the Spirit of God still deals with every person. Somewhere along the way, he knocks. And with what truth they have, he speaks. I believe that. And if you want to read Romans 1, you ought to read it. So when a crowd of people hear the gospel, man, are they responsible when they walk away then? Because now they've heard the gospel of the eternal Son of God. And if they reject that, they will go before the judgment seat with far greater light than the person who saw nature or whose conscience spoke to them that there was a God. Amen? Y'all are somber tonight. All right, well, let's stand together. Next week, I'm going to talk to you about the work of the Holy Spirit. Boy, it's good stuff. The work of the Holy Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit. Father, we thank you tonight that we see your Spirit moving in, moving in the world way back at the beginning of time. We see your Spirit speaking to people, warning people, living inside of people, preparing people, moving in this world. But Lord, we're so thankful that we're standing in the blessing of the new covenant, a better covenant, a better Savior, better mediator, a better sacrifice. Because we, Lord, have received the Spirit without measure. And we thank you for pouring the Spirit of God out upon your church. Can we just lift our hands to him tonight and just say, Lord, fill me afresh and anew with your Spirit. Fill me with your Spirit. In the name of Jesus, I receive the touch of your spirit. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Father, I pray that we'll be more sensitive to him speaking to us, more sensitive to his teaching, more sensitive to his promptings, his warnings, his encouragements, more sensitive to the spirit of God who lives inside of us. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Thank you for coming tonight. I know the weather was rough, and we'll see you Sunday or